0: As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine, and if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Illy Cawthorne. Today we've got the latest podcast in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. In this episode, I put your questions on the suffragettes to Dr Diane Atkinson a historian and the author of Rise Up Women, The Remarkable Lives of the Suffragettes. So we've got a whole bunch of questions here about the suffragettes. Some are coming from the most searched for terms to do with the suffragettes online and some are coming from our our readers on um, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Let's start at the very beginning. Who were the suffragettes?
2: The suffragettes were members of the Women's Social and Political Union, and that was an organisation that started in 1903. And it kind of jumped onto the stage of women's suffrage at that moment. Um, And of course, the women's suffrage stage had been up and running to some degree since the 1860s, although it was not really out there on the radar very much. 1903 the Pankhurst family founded this organization and their methods were always going to be going in the head in the direction of direct action and they the slogan they used which was so clever these not words really describes the way things were going to be from now on they weren't going to ask for it nicely they're going to demand it and their campaign was so out there and their behavior was so kind of unfeminine and startling they get this uh, kind of it's meant to be a condescending nickname the suffragettes by the Daily Mail but of course being the suffragettes they owned it they took it and they said yeah that's good okay well, we're suffragettes that's no problem and it really refers to the women who were prepared to go and do quite a bit more than just writing petitions and going to parliament and being polite about it and nice.
0: Well I think actually that raises a good point which we should probably address before we go any further which is one of the biggest misconceptions I think about the suffragettes. I wonder if you could just clarify for us the difference between suffragettes and what were called suffragists.
2: Okay, well, the suffragists were women who were asking for the vote and drawing up petitions for the vote and going to meet their local members of parliament kind of nicely and in a genteel way from the 1860s onwards. And they were suffragists. And Mrs Pankhurst started off actually as a suffragist. Um, and they remain, they're on the scene right the way through to 1918 when women do get the vote. And they've got their own thing going. You know, their, their, their strategies are different. Um, but they work in parallel with the suffragettes. Um, There's a conception that, uh, a misconception, that the suffragists and the suffragettes were kind of at daggers drawn in this kind of catfight thing, which is not true. They work together right the way through till about 1912. But it was always understood the suffragists were going to do it their way and the suffragettes were going to do it their way. But there was no big issue until militancy came along and kind of disrupted everybody's sort of direction of travel. So the the, um, suffragists and the suffragettes went to each other's meetings. Um, They went to each other's fundraisers. They wore each other's badges, and it's a really good, strong, broad movement right across the political spectrum that's working, going forward to get women the vote.
0: That leads me on to my next question, which is what exactly did the suffragettes want? Was it as simple as they wanted the vote for women?
2: They wanted the, I mean, all of them, the suffragettes and suffragettes, wanted the vote on equal terms as men. So however and whoever were being enfranchised in the male population they wanted the same for women, so there was there was no confusion or there's no division about what what they wanted. They were all going and forward in the same direction.
0: Um, you mentioned uh, direct action earlier, but I wonder if we could go into a bit more detail because my next question is, what did the suffragettes do?
2: Oh <laughs> well, they, did, they <laughs> did a hell of a lot actually. First of all, they started by um, interrupting meetings by going along and interrupting politicians and asking okay, that's all very well, but when are you going to give women the vote? They would jump up, they would unfurl banners, they would shout and ask the questions and mostly just get bundled out onto the street, sometimes arrested, sometimes not. Then they started to um, go to political meetings in numbers to really disrupt it in a very organised way. And they were so clever at infiltrating meetings that, in fact, women were banned from meetings. So what they did was they would hide themselves in buildings where meetings were going to be held overnight. They'd hide in a cupboard or up in the attics or in the lavatories. And they would just kind of pop out when a big meeting was in place and cause absolute mayhem by interrupting these disembodied voices and coming kind of. Taking over the meeting. So that was pretty amazing. Um, they started to um what was called test the politicians, which is we'd feel it a bit like stalking, but kind of in a nice way. You know, they would go to where they were going to church, they'd where they're playing golf, and they just make their lives as uncomfortable as possible, especially the cabinet ministers who they identified as real opponents. So for example, you know, suffragettes would hide in the bushes of favourite golf courses on the Sunday when cabinet ministers were having a round of golf. And they would just jump out of the bushes and shout when are you going to give women the vote? And that would just be very disruptive. And it's kind of funny, but it was something that women had never done. And they used to have kind of not quite, not quite hand-to-hand fighting with them, but they'd go up and confront them and grab hold of them by their lapels and say, when are you going to give in the vote? So there's that kind of stuff. Then, of course, alongside this was uh, fairly regular marches to Parliament Square and trying to get into Parliament. And that was something that was held on a regular basis. So they've got loads of different ways they are gaining publicity. And a lot of it is bad, but they don't care about that because all publicity is good publicity as far as they're concerned. Um, And they're just really um, making their voices heard, just forcing their way onto the political agenda and forcing their way into the newspapers and just forcing their way into the faces of politicians. And this is, of course, very, very new indeed. And it's in the context of a very hostile environment and they're women and it's just... They are just beyond the pale. So there's very little public support. There's very little political support and there's very little press support for them from the word go.
0: You mentioned that they were really good at um, PR and essentially getting themselves into the public eye. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about the kind of propaganda element of the suffragette campaign.
2: They were good at PR, and they were good at stunts as well. They were very good at chaining themselves to railings, and they had these special like leather corsets made, if you like, and they would uh, chain themselves with big bolts and chains to uh, important buildings in Downing Street and up in um, Buckingham Palace, anywhere important. And of course, they would padlock themselves to railings, and they would throw the key away into the crowd. Friends, And it took the police about an hour to cut them out with hacksaws. And all that time, they can make their political speeches, whereas before they could just pick the women up and bundle them into the back of a Black Mariah. So the chaining um, of uh, to railings is brilliant. And it gets an audience, it gets a crowd. And again, it's adding to this great um, snowball of publicity. They're very good at propaganda. They're brilliant at uh, writing uh, little leaflets, which they called handbills, and they would ask direct questions like, "Why do women want the vote?" and "Why we are militant?" and They would say things like, "What women want and how they mean to get it." And they'd have this very good communication strategy. They would hand that out in the street to anybody who wanted to read it. It was good. It was clear. And it was, it was ma- making the argument very, very effectively indeed. So they started to do a mass education programme. Of course, a lot of people just looked at industry on the ground. But that didn't matter. It was starting to get the message out. And propaganda, of course, is done through the colours. And purple, white and green was their colour scheme, becomes very popular from 1908 onwards. And lots of big department stores and all kinds of small businesses, some run by women, some not, were making stuff for suffragettes to wear and give to each other. And again, spreading the message of women's suffrage.
0: Um, You mentioned there that there was a lot of hostility towards the suffragettes. And we'll come on to that, I think, in a bit more detail later. But how many suffragettes were there?
2: Um, we don't know exactly because they very deliberately didn't keep any membership list because they didn't want the police to get that information and raid their homes and cause lots of problems on a kind of personal level. So, I mean, when I was writing my book, I... Came, I got a very clear impression there were thousands all over the country, but I couldn't ever nail a figure on it because sometimes they would, they'd have short bursts of activity in membership and they'd go away and they'd come back in again. But I would say several thousand throughout the United Kingdom.
0: That, I think, would lead me on to the first question from one of our followers on Instagram, TLJ95, who asks, how organised were they as a group? And I guess I would flip that on its head a bit and say, how were they organised as a group?
2: Well, they were brilliant organisers. They had some very effective women organisers at the national level and the leadership was very tight and they were such an attractive group. They were such a sexy organisation that they attracted some very capable women uh, who were able to give all kinds of skills to the organisation. So all around the country, you've got organisers often being paid £2 a week. And others were a lot of volunteers in this, who were organizing local women to do local activities, local fundraising. So organizationally, they were brilliant. And they had this kind of almost like a military mindset. They thought of themselves as crusaders for women's freedom. So they have this kind of militaristic language sometimes. So they have ranks, they have generals and captains and whatever, just to mobilise local women. And that's right across the class structure. It's not just middle class women. To get engaged, involved at different levels, whether it's um, door-to-door canvassing, whether it's street corner meetings, whether it's giving money, raising money, whether it's going to London, whether it's gathering groups of women to come from Preston, from um, Don. From all over the Arctic, and they were just brilliant. I mean, I've not really come across anybody who did it as well as that. They were very tight. And they regarded every big event as an opportunity for stage management and huge propaganda value. So they were pretty astonishing.
0: Um, you mentioned earlier Pankhurst, um, and one of the questions I had was: um, who was the leader of the suffragettes? Is it fair to see, to see her as, quote, the leader? I
2: think she was the figurehead. I mean, she writes about it in an autobiography, about gathering women together from a local community who were uh, Labour Party activists and who were women interested in suffrage and who weren't really particularly interested, but were just fascinated by what she was up to. So she's the woman who writes about it, at the foundation, but of course, her daughters played a big part. In fact, Christabel, her eldest daughter, it sort of put her on the spot and said well you know you and your friends have taken you know, two generations on we still haven't got the vote and we're not going to wait for it and my generation won't wait for it so she kind of pushed her mother a bit further and that's really the the catalyst in lots of ways for the WSPU and this very different and distinctive policy so Mrs Panko is very important Christabel's is very important Sylvia is very important because she gives them their look she gives them their brand their image their logos and of course she's got a whole different um agenda operating so the pankhursts are important as leaders they're charismatics you know when they go into a building when they go into a room they light up the room hundreds of women are recruited through the force of their personality and their rhetoric and their um their looks you know they were very fashionable they're well dressed they're appealing a bit like pop stars you know they were really hot (laughs) and lots of young women thought they're kind of an aspirational group of women but of course the donkey work the leg work the hard work so much of that was done by women all around the country and you've got these big names who are operating at local level but of course there's there's women we're just we're just discovering who were involved in it and they feed off the drama and the um, style and the charisma of the Pankhursts. And they they lift their own performances. So it's a great, it's a great breeding ground, if you like, for organisers and activists. So they're very important. But, you know, a lot of the work is done by hundreds of women around the country.
0: George Samuel on Facebook, he asks, most of the famous suffragettes um, were middle-class women, but what was the role of working-class women in the suffragette movement?
2: Well, uh, there's some... Interesting working class women involved in the movement. There's a very interesting woman from Leeds called, called Mary Gawthorpe and she was an elementary school teacher. She's like a pupil teacher. And she was very involved and active in Leeds. Um, there was an interesting woman called uh, Minnie, Bul- uh, in Minnie Baldock, who really in a way started the movement in London. She was in Canning Town. She was kind of a a Labour activist. She worked in a shirt factory. And she helps the WSPU get their first London branch. And Minnie Baldock's very important. She's rooted in that Docklands community. And she recruits lots and lots of local women uh, right from the beginning, right from 1906 onwards. So Minnie Baldock is is kind of underappreciated, I think, um, outside local history activists in the East End now. people should know more about Minnie Bordock because she's actually a bit of a poster girl for working class women and, uh, to, to become recruited and become recruiters themselves. And some of the better off women used to pay Minnie, used to give her money to get a housekeeper in and get some paid help to look after husband and children when Minnie was on the road doing the tours, doing the recruitment and doing the training. So there's some very interesting women all around the country who are talking to their own women. Of course, the most famous one is Annie Kenney and her sisters. And Annie Kenney is definitely the poster girl for working women because she can go into any working community and say, I know know your story, I know you, we're the same, we've always had to work for our living. So Annie brings lots of working women into the movement as members, but also she trains them as organisers. So they're really important. And increasingly, we're getting to know a lot more about them.
0: Yeah, so this misconception that it was just middle class ladies isn't right when you actually dig down into it.
2: No, it's not. And in fact, one of the reasons I, when I wrote my book, I want I knew about um, what they'd done, but a lot of the time I wasn't sure about who they were. So I kind of went into their backstories to find out who they were and how they'd come into the movement because it's the most. Um, controversial and popular movement in the early 20th century. You know, you had to be brave and strong and thick skinned to join that movement because most people really violently disapproved of you. But increasingly, I found that um, it's not just the middle class matrons in the Southeast. And that was always something the press said. They always play that card, you know. When in fact, in reality, right at the beginning, it was working class women who were making this happen.
0: This was an incredibly controversial movement. So a question that we've had from Talia Price on Facebook was how violent um, did the protests and activities of the suffragettes get?
2: Well, they became extremely militant. In a way, it's a reaction. You know, in the first few years, they're like publicity stunts. It's a bit, it's a bit jokey. It's a bit comic. It's a bit, you know, pestering politicians and knocking their hats off and shouting at them. You know, that's quite, quite harmless. But once you... Once the reaction to Black Friday kicks in, and that's when about 150 women are physically and sexually assaulted on a big demonstration Parliament Square in November 1910. Once that sinks in and the levels of violence are understood, Mrs Panker says, we can't go to Parliament like this. It's just too dangerous. We have to go underground. We have to wage a guerrilla war against this government and they were her words so in a way the suffragettes are responding to violence police violence in parliament square that day Um, very heavy-handed policing of the um, their previous meetings and also what's going on in prison that's a big part of it because a lot of suffragettes again and, and women who get kind of you know, go on meetings and they get caught up and arrested to go to prison. You know, they get radicalised in prison because of the violence that's going on in prison through force feeding. So it's a complex thing. Uh, it's a dynamic and evolving situation where the suffragettes are responding to police brutality on the streets and sexual violence on that particular day and what's happening in prisons all around the country when suffragettes are going on hunger strike and being force fed and what they say that force feeding is is torture so then then the the, the the vandalism starts and um telephone wires are, are broken and Letters are burnt in pillar boxes and windows are smashed and reservoirs are polluted and golfing greens and sports facilities are vandalised. And then, of course, as hunger striking and forced feeding escalate, as the government becomes more intransigent, then the violence becomes more like arson and planting bombs and attacking works of art. And attacking churches, which was perhaps really the most surprising of all. So it, it kind of it is a response to what they feel is going on in politics, what the authorities are condoning in prisons and on the streets.
0: Um, you mentioned the um, police brutality and the treatment of suffragettes in prison. So Emma Donahue on Twitter, she asked quite a specific question about how suffragettes were force-fed when they were in prison. But I just wonder if you could tell us a bit more broadly about the ways that they were treated in prison and what their experiences there were like.
2: Well, when they first went to prison, they, they um, said, well, we are, we are political prisoners, our, our aims and objectives are entirely political. But very often, the authorities were treating them as common criminals. They were charging with obstruction and damage and and, you know, the, the wrong offences really, they were there for political reasons. And in the 19th century, Male campaigners and protesters had fought for and been given the right to have political uh, to be treated as political prisoners, and they were considered to be first-division prisoners. They wore their own clothes, they had their own food, they had newspapers and books, they had freedom of association. So it's a very specific set of privileges, which was felt to be part and parcel of being polit- a political activist. And the suffragettes just asked for themselves, what men have been given in the 19th century. And when that didn't happen, they started to go on hunger strike and they wouldn't eat. And then eventually force-feeding comes into the scenario. And that started in 1909. And there's three ways that women are force-fed. One is they're tipped back in their chair and food is pushed into their mouth and their mouths are covered. So they have to swallow. That's like, That's the most, if you can call it, benign way of doing it. The second way was the nasal tube. And that was a doctor supervising, uh, pouring down liquid food, um, down a funnel, down a tube, which was inserted up the nose quite brutally. And this suffragette, the prisoner, is held down by four prison wardresses. And the idea is that uh, food, which is like uh, egg white or you know or um uh oxo that kind of thing um would just trickle down into the throat and they wouldn't starve to death the most brutal and invasive is um the the stomach tube which is again it's the funnel it's the tube it's the food that's poured down but it's forced into the mouth the mouth is held open sometimes with a big clamp and and the tube is pushed down the back of the throat So it's like a reverse stomach pump and it's pushed right down to the top of the stomach and it's brutal, it's painful, it's it's extremely damaging, it's extremely physically dangerous, psychologically harming. And, you know, hundreds of women endured that force-feeding process two to three times a day because they were so insistent they were political prisoners and they were demanding the vote. So it's an astonishing... Uh, decision to make that you're going to go down that particular route when you go to prison for a suffragette offence. It's astonishing. The suffragettes started to win, in inverted commas, the propaganda war against the government because they designed these very lurid posters showing what force feeding looked like. And there were horrific images and they would be flyposted all around the country. And gradually the British public were responding to the idea that force-feeding was torture. And they said, this is a liberal government, and the liberal government are torturing our women. So, you know, so they started to really make inroads in terms of public opinion. And the government um, responded to this. And so they temporarily halted force-feeding in the spring of 1930. They rushed through an act became known as the Cat and Mouse Act. And basically, it said it allowed suffragettes to starve themselves, so they were really quite weak. They wouldn't be force-fed at this time. They'd be released on special license. And the idea was they would go to a particular location and the police would be posted outside the front door to make sure they didn't escape. The idea was they would go to this safe house or they go to this convalescent area or a friend's house they would recover their strength they put on a bit of weight they'd be arrested by the police and taken back into prison so the government is playing game of cat and mouse with these women and the idea was they would just sit it out at this place put on a couple of pounds feel a bit better and go back and carry on backs and forwards well that was naive because suffragettes were never going to just sit there sit it out and go back into prison And so what the authorities had to do after about four or five months of this strategy failing was to actually reintroduce force feeding in the winter of 1913. Because what happened was as soon as suffragettes went to these places to recover, they would escape. They'd get past the police cordon they would do a double they would swap they would get a double to come in and swap clothes and the suffragette would go out and the other person who there's a pretty good likeness in terms of size and weight and appearance and and in disguise would um be in the house and this person would kind of saunter out past the police and realize would realize that two hours ago the suffragette had walked away heavily disguised and got out and of course when they got out they didn't just sit at home and just, you know, read magazines or books or whatever. They went around committing more acts of militancy. So you've got this group of women who are highly politicised, highly radicalised. They've recovered from force-feeding and they're ready to go again. And they go around the country with, in disguises, using aliases, and they're, they're doing more militancy. They're burning down churches, they're smashing ha- uh, windows, they're doing all that kind of stuff. So you've got this... You've got this population out there who are kind of hardened suffragette prisoners who go around and they mostly never get caught. They mostly never ever get caught because they're doing it in the middle of the night and they're very good at getting away. Not, not all of them get away with it, but a lot of them are getting away with it. So the cat and mouse act was a failure because the suffragettes are doing more damage more militancy and also they're being very cheeky about it because when they do burn down their building they leave a votes from a newspaper on the floor they leave clues that they've done it but they're miles away at this point so it's it's really embarrassing and of course the suffragettes loved it and in the end the government had to kind of realize that the cat and mass act wasn't working it had been it made things worse actually and so the uh force feeding is reintroduced.
0: And what do you think that the impact of that was in terms of the way that their campaign was perceived? How did the public perceive the treatment of these women in that way?
2: Well, a a lot of people had no sympathy for them at all because they didn't understand the full scenario, didn't understand and didn't quite believe in police brutality. They didn't understand really what it meant to be force fed. But then the suffragettes responded to this sort of ignorance by producing interesting propaganda and meetings and cartoons and posters, which they would fly post around the country to show you what the, you know, what force feeding looked like. So, really, the suffragettes are, are fighting to get public opinion on their side. But the background is, is the press are are still mostly unsympathetic. And even the, the church, even clergymen called the suffragettes to be force-fed, saying they'd brought it upon themselves. So the clergy were divided and the medical profession were divided. And so one of the reasons why they start attacking churches in the latter part of the campaign is because Some clergymen, some parts of the church uh, denounced suffragette behaviour and would not call out the government and the authorities for force-feeding women. And the astonishing thing that, you know, God-fearing pious women would burn down churches was, was, you know, it was huge extremism. But the the, the mood, um, the experience of women are extreme at this time.
0: On which note, um, Thomas Fay said on Facebook, so he said, It would be good to know the truth about the suffragettes, not just the sugar-coated stories we're told about how heroic they were. Should we consider them urban terrorists? They did carry out a campaign of bombings. What do you think to that?
2: Well, I think terrorists, um, you know, as we understand terrorism, the aim is always to take human life. That's that's just goes without saying. But the time of the suffragettes, they called themselves terrorists. They said they were terrorists. They said, we are terrorising this liberal government for its oppression of women. Women want basic human rights, but this government will not give it to them. But they never, ever intended to cause any loss of human life. That was never their intention. And they never did. And most of the, the violence uh, that was experienced was at the hands of the police against uh, the suffragettes. It was not the other way around. So terrorism is, is a, it, you know, it's a big conversation but the suffragettes i don't think we could ever regard them as terrorists in the same way that we have come to understand and experience terrorism
0: so when we talk about um, the suffragette bombs um what were the targets of them and how did they kind of transpire those attacks
2: Well, they always wrecked the places where they were going to plant a bomb or burn or or have an arson attack. So it was always make sure there was no loss of human life. So uh, locations would be wrecked more than once. Um, There were always going to be empty buildings or abandoned buildings, or there was, it's pretty clear there would never be any members of the public anywhere around. So sports facilities, empty train carriages, um, empty buildings, private houses. It was always going to be just to draw attention to the government's behaviour by destroying private property. Because the suffragettes said, this government cares more about property than it cares about women and their suffering. And so, again, it was always clear that it was going to be empty buildings with no, nobody in sight who could possibly risk. Sometimes they had a target in mind and they wrecked it and they realised it was just too dangerous, that there were times when people were in the vicinity and they would just take, cross that one off the list. So I don't think we can accuse them as terrorism, as in the way that we understand that word. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I, th- I think they, I think their propaganda styles and their publicity stunts were very very successful indeed. But what they're remembered for really is the the arson, the bombing, and, and attacking paintings and burning down
3: churches.
0: We've spoken a lot in this conversation about opposition to the suffragettes, um, and Maddie Hodges on Facebook asks, were there a lot of women at the time that were anti-suffrage?
2: Yes, lots. They had their own organisation. It's called the National League for Opposing Women's Suffrage, and that sounds so peculiar to us, it's so counterintuitive, but at the time it's, it felt reasonable and a lot of women joined it they had their own badges had their own meetings um and sometimes they joined male organizations too so there's a big constituency of women out there who were just frightened of it they thought you know their life would never be the same if women had the vote uh, and even women who were you know well educated and had successful writing careers like mrs humphrey board who was the best-selling novelist she was very much opposed to women having the vote. So it's, it's, it's hard to understand for us now, I think.
0: What, what would some of their arguments against suffrage be, for example?
2: Well, people were mostly of a conservative disposition, so they thought this was such a huge change that all other areas of life would be affected by this shock wave. So it was a, a threat to the status quo. Um, a lot of people thought, and women are included, was that you know, women didn't deserve the right to vote because they didn't join the military. They didn't fight for the, you know, the, the queen or the king of country. Um, a lot of women thought that, that they were themselves, and men definitely thought this, they were temperamentally unsuited to politics they said women are um Driven by their biology, and they they they're erratic in their thought process and their thinking. And they said, "Well, if there's a parliamentary election and a woman is menstruating, she may not have a full faculties of critical thinking." And this was felt to be a threat to democracy because how could you have this potentially unhinged group of women making this important choice when they were being handicapped from their own biology? Again, it's nonsense. It's completely mad. But people were concerned about that they also said that if women get involved in politics that you know they're going to stop having they're going to stop getting married they're going to stop having children and the british race will die out and they call this this um, aspect of it race suicide and it's that these are two strange words to put together but you know they did and um they said, well, British race is at risk from this behaviour, and the empire's at risk because if the colonies see the motherland giving women the vote, well, what will, you know, the, the empire will crumble because the colonies will, will lose all respect for the motherland. So these are bizarre arguments that are very hard to understand to us now, but they had a lot of currency at the time.
0: You were clearly um, really sticking your neck out then to join the suffragettes. MHFQ on Instagram um, asks, do we know how the suffragettes uh, were treated at home, whether they were supported or not by their families?
2: That's a really good question, because in the end, it was a real decision of conscience. Um, the suffragettes, as I've said, were very unpopular. Um, and so to be an effective and... and um, to have a not quite an enjoyable experience but to be allowed to be a suffragette in a way you needed your family support you needed your father to back you and lots of fathers did you needed your mother to go along with that you needed your close family to support you because if they if they took against what you were doing for various reasons like you're bringing shame on the family they could disown you And some suffragettes were disowned by their families. Um, And some suffragettes, and a lot of school teachers experience this, they lost their jobs. And even going to a a political meeting, if your headmistress heard you've been at a meeting, you'd be dismissed. So there's a loss of of work, there's a loss of family. Quite a lot of suffragette marriages really rocked and collapsed because the, the husband wouldn't go along with it, wouldn't allow it quite a number of engagements were broken off. Um, lots of friendships were broken. So it was an enormous sacrifice to, to be a suffragette. And I, I always salute them thinking, well, God, how, you know, all those, all those were lucky enough to have great dads and great brothers because brothers would often give them personal protection. So those who were fully engaged with, it, with family support were very fortunate and they really needed that. But a lot of suffragettes, you know, they went to prison for quite long periods of time. They had husbands and little children at home, and their, their husbands supported that, and they—that was part of their, their their contribution to the cause. So, you know, it's 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 very easy to forget what sacrifices they made, and even when the vote was won in the nineteen twenties and thirties, suffragettes were often asked to talk about. Uh, their experiences and they said well I will only talk about this if this is going into print by using my maiden name because those of those of them who had got married they didn't want their husband's careers to be wrecked by the association of their wives previous career with suffrage and that happened quite a few times and there were some terrific male supporters whose businesses collapsed who lost their jobs whose colleagues shunned them who really lost a great deal, lost friendships and uh, professional standing because they had supported their wives in the campaign. So it's it's a massive decision to to to, to do this and to stick with it.
0: Huge sacrifices had to be made. Uh- just to broaden the scope a bit for a moment, um, I've got a question from Vintage Victoria on Twitter, who asks, were British suffragettes influenced by women in New Zealand who got the vote earlier? And I would perhaps broaden that out a bit to say, were they influenced by um, other, other countries abroad at all? And, and in turn, did the British suffragettes influence um, those abroad?
2: That's a good question. There's a big international thread running through this story. Um, the suffragettes, of course, were interested in the tactics and the rhetoric of American women who had got the vote because it was state-by-state state enfranchisement in America. Um, they were very fascinated to know more about women in New Zealand and the Australian states that had the vote. Of course, Scandinavian countries were gradually enfranchising their women. So there's a great deal of and a cross-fertilisation of ideas. Um, and they were keen to have American women touring uh, the United Kingdom. The Suffragists were keen to foster those friendships, have them going on tour to talk about what the voted meant in New Zealand, for example. There's a lot of stuff going on between England and New Zealand and Australian suffragists and feminists too. So there's a sense of international sisterly solidarity that they deliberately create. And in their newspaper, It's Women, which is out every week, they had this fantastic page called Women in Other Lands. So you could read the paper and you could find out what about feminism in Nigeria and women climbing previously unscaled mountains in South America so you could feel inspired by all these great women around the world and you weren't just on your own in London or Dundee or Preston you know there was a great community out there of women who were going forward and that was really important for, for morale so Mrs Pankhurst went to America three times Sylvia Pankhurst twice and of course Australian New Zealand women come here and and go around and talk so it's it's a very particular strategy that's very effective.
0: Um, You mentioned a bit earlier about what happened after women got the vote, Um, but Andy Baines on Facebook asks, um, so what happened to the suffrage movement as a whole after the representation of the People Act in 1918? And he raises an interesting point because he says, um, especially since full franchise for women wasn't given until 1928, um, it seems, as he says, a bit like a missed opportunity that they didn't continue campaigning.
2: Well, um, the, the movement, by 1918, if you think about it, a lot of women, suffragists and suffragettes had been at this for years, and then they'd been during the First World War doing whatever they were doing in the First World War. And certainly some people like Annie Kenny were just completely worn out because she'd been at this since 1905, and she'd had a very vivid time of it in suffrage and during the First World War. So some of them were just burnt out. By 1918, and they were grateful and relieved that there was you know, stage one had come along. But of course, we must remember that the suffragists had been campaigning right through the war in a very alien environment. I mean, politely campaigning for the vote, um, but of course, everybody's focus is on the war. You know, it's a bit like everybody's focused on the pandemic. Now, it's very hard to get other uh, things going forward. So the the um, Mrs. Fawcett's suffragists had been very active in the war, keeping, keeping the issue bubbling somewhere. And then between 1980 and 1928, the suffragists were very active in reminding Parliament there was this huge age discrepancy. I mean, what the hell was that about? And of course, um, eventually in 1928, the uh, suffrage was equalised. Um, but it took 10 years, and it shouldn't have taken 10 years, but, but it did. Uh, for various sort of external reasons. But a lot of the suffragettes had been involved and engaged. They'd been in the war and they kind of went off and did other feminist campaigns. Some of them got involved in the peace movement. Some of them got involved in left-wing politics. Some of them got involved in right-wing politics. Some of them got, in, got involved in animal rights campaigning. So in a way, they, they use the first instalment for them as a personal jumping-off point into diversifying, d- diversifying their politics. But a lot of, you know, quite a lot of them just put their feet up and thought, well, I've, just, you know, I've given, I've done, you know. And others just couldn't stop it. You know, they just couldn't stop being political. And I remember in the and this fantastic woman, and she'd been a suffragette in 1912. Her and her sisters and her mother were really involved and been to prison and all that. And then um, for the rest of her life, she was active in the 1920s and 30s of animal welfare and anti vivisectionism And then the last campaign she uh, got involved in in her 80s was the ordination of women priests. So some of them, like Mrs. Lydiard, just don't stop. And, um, you know, we, we need We need more of that today i think i think we need Mm. them to come back
0: (laughs) (laughs) um andrew brooks 84 asks a question which may be impossible to answer because we are straying slightly into the realms of counterfactuals but i'll see what you think which is would the suffragettes have succeeded in their campaign if the first world war hadn't happened
2: um a lot of people have chewed this over over the years um i think I think it would have happened. I think it would have been very bloody. I think more women would have died. Um, and I think it would have been, it would have been a different kind of a victory. The war, horrible though this sounds, and horrible though it was, was a breathing space. It was chance to kind of stop. and suffragettes generally threw themselves mostly, not wholly, mostly into um, the war effort. Um, suffragists were a bit more of a mixed response to that but almost all suffragettes paused ready to pick this whole project up again after the war if necessary and women were so badly needed in the war to do the work that men would normally have been doing that it meant that when it came to the war being over nobody in their right mind could say that women didn't deserve the vote because women had fought the war on the home front and the men had been on the various, various theatres of war. So, in a way, it was a, it's a moral argument. And the suffragettes, if they had not, if women had not been granted the vote, would have certainly had this fantastic bit of moral high ground they could have claimed, quite rightly, and they would have revived their campaign. I'm absolutely certain that this militancy would have been revived. And the government were aware that militancy would be revived. That was one of the factors in the debates around agreeing to certain women over 30 getting it. So, the war, the war gave uh, gave everybody on all sides a chance to salute what women had done and actually to make it almost inevitable that some women would get it in
0: 1918. Um, Tamara Souter on Instagram has another of a bit of a thought-provoking one here, which is suffragettes or suffragists, who brought about the vote?
2: Well, I'd, I'd have to say both sides made a huge contribution and... Fed off each other and worked hard, but as a suffragette historian, I'm bound to say that their campaign um, was was punishing on themselves, um, and that's something they accepted. And it just made sure that suffrage was at the top of the agenda um, because their tactics were so extreme, they were so confrontational, they were so in everybody's faces, they were so. Um, uh, despised by so many people but they just kept going with it and one of the things about the suffragettes was that yes all women's suffrage activists were persistent but they were they persisted with going to prison they persisted with hunger striking they persisted with force feeding and I think that they just created a different kind of energy around it and and yes there's danger there and I think it meant that you know their their contribution kept the subject alive. Um, And it kept it on everybody's lips, often in a very negative way. Um, I wouldn't like to suggest that they were universally praised. They were mostly universally condemned. But it just was something that was never, ever going to go away as long as they were still alive.
0: For our final question, this would be quite a good one from Talia Price on Facebook, who asks, looking back, which tactics of the suffragettes do you think were the most successful?
2: I think the whole kind of portfolio, uh, I think going to meetings, I think how they evolved, how they escalated, how they upped the action, um, how they developed their strategies. Uh, because, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, militants and extremism, but uh, often they're quite funny. You know, they were, you know, they, they had like fun times. It wasn't all harrowing and terrifying. They would... Certainly on census night in 1911, they had like suffragette sleepovers. So they'd have like a party or they'd go they'd have a smoking party, if you can imagine such a thing, or they'd go roller skating, or they'd camp out on Wimbledon Common, or they'd hire, you know, gypsy caravans and they'd just sort of trek, trek about in the middle of the night just having a party. So that was the good side, refusing to take part in the census. And when they were pestering the politicians, you know, that was quite funny. It was a bit like a silent film, like Keystone Cops being chased around. So you know, it wasn't all terribly, terribly painful and harrowing. Um, and they they they... They were good at parties. They were good at fundraising. So, you know, it was it was a huge social life. And if you were in it, you were in it. And it kind of gave you this fabulous circle of friends. You learnt new skills. Your self your your self esteem was raised. Your consciousness was raised. And um, you know, and and tactics evolved. I think they—I think their propaganda stars and their publicity stars were very, very successful indeed. But what they're remembered for, really, is the the arson, the bombing, and, and attacking paintings and burning down churches.
0: That was Diane Atkinson. Her book, *Rise Up, Women: The Remarkable Lives of the Suffragettes*, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Ryan Lavelle will be speaking about medieval rebellions.